Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, October 27th, 2017. Rapidly approaching the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. But I need to know, has God fracked your well yet? (laughs) The most absurd things I've ever heard. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, and uh, apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, who apparently whose books we need to be buying and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine that's teaching is like not even at all close to what God's Word says. And many people aren't even <laughs> really trying anymore to even create the pretense or the appearance that they're rightly handling a biblical text. It's really weird and duplicitous. So uh, let's talk about what we're going to do today. Still, uh, We're still in our Friday light uh, mode for just a few more weeks, I'm hoping. And uh, we're going to be uh, tapping uh, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley on the shoulders. He's been uh, doing a series on the solas of the Reformation. And we're going to listen to two messages from him today. The first is on Sola Scriptura. We'll take a break, and then when we come back, we'll listen to uh, you know Sola Fide, uh, uh, that is Faith Alone. So uh, with that, let's get into the program proper. We'll get right to it. Here's Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley from Bethel Evangelical Free Church in Hamley Stoke-on-Trent in the United Kingdom, and his message on Sola Scriptura. He will be in Second Timothy. Here we go. Our scripture reading this evening is found in the epistle, the second epistle of Paul to Timothy, chapter 3. 2 Timothy, chapter 3. Paul is here writing this letter right at the end of his life. He knows that in the not too distant future at all, 
he is going to be executed as a martyr for the faith. His, his witness, his passion for the Lord Jesus, his love of Christ and his preaching the gospel is going to be literally the death of him. And he is glad that as he prepares to die, he is passing on this great trust to Timothy and warning him as well as encouraging him that to be a Christian is a difficult thing at times. So Second Timothy chapter 3. But know this, in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning, and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs was also. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And may God bless the reading of his holy scriptures. Our text this evening is found in the chapter that we read, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Familiar words, I'm sure. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every Good work. This year has been decided to be the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. I say decided because you've got to say it started somewhere, and the event that's been 
chosen is when Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses to the castle church doors in Wittenberg. And as we look back on 500 years of Protestantism, we might ask the question, well, was it worth it? And is it relevant? What is the relevance of the Reformation today? What is what a monk did in Germany 500 years ago? What does it mean to us? What does it matter? Well, it matters very much because the Reformation was a recovery of the biblical gospel, a recovery of biblical Christianity, a revival. And when we look at when people talk about the Reformation teaching, they talk about, they're often categorized into these five statements known as the five solas, which of course is a Latin word that means alone. And these five principles of the Reformation are Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone, the glory of God Alone, And all of these sum up the Reformation message. So we're looking in five evening sermons, evening messages at these five statements. The five solas of the Reformation, the five alones. And we start with scripture alone, the Bible alone. What does it mean? Well, a summary statement, a definition has been provided. And a good definition of sola scriptura is this, that the Bible is the only infallible rule of faith and practice in the church. The Bible is the only infallible rule of faith and practice. That is, the only infallible rule of what we are to believe and what we are to do in the church doesn't mean that there aren't other things that we look to but it means there's only one infallible rule and that's why of course when we have sermons when we study we study the bible we preach the bible we don't preach anything else it's always from the bible and we can see Sola Scriptura held up here in the Bible in our text, 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. The Bible is our authority. It's our only infallible external authority. That's to say the Bible is something that's not subject to us, but we are subject to it. The Bible isn't subject to the church, the church is subject to it. And we see here in Paul's words to young Timothy, first of all, the source of the Bible. Where does the Bible come from? Secondly, we see the supremacy of the Bible. And thirdly, we see the sufficiency of the Bible. The source of the Bible all scripture is given by inspiration of God. To translate the, the word, very, very literally, all scripture is breathed out by God. 
And some Bible translations render it that way. All scripture is God-breathed. Because the word inspiration in our language can be a very weak word in some ways. You think about some films, they'll say inspired by a true story. And you know if the film says it's inspired by a true story, 99.99% of it is probably completely made up. It's inspired by the true story. The true story is vastly removed from the story that's being told on the screen. But that's not what it means for the Bible to be given by inspiration of God. It's not that God gave this sort of impulse to the writers and the writers had this impulse from God to write things down and so there's a gap between the inspiration and the writing. It's breathed out by God. It's given by God. When we read the Bible... God is speaking. God is speaking to us. And we have God's very words. You notice it is all scripture. And sometimes we skate over the word scripture because it's a technical term for us, for the Bible. But all scripture means that which is written. That's to say it's not that God gave these people the ideas... And they then put it down in their own words. It's not like you get very often with students and people taking notes in a lecture. They're just jotting down the notes in their own words almost. But it's that God gave the very words. Every word of God is given by him. And so we find this summed up and described for us in... Very similar way, really, in Second Peter, Peter's second epistle, the first chapter, and verses 20 and 21, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of, and the of there is of in the sense of from, any private interpretation. That's to say, it wasn't that God gave the idea and they then interpreted it, doesn't come from any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit it's not a result of human beings meditating on what God had taught them but God himself working through them it is God's very Word God has said it. And that means that the Bible has this quality that nothing else has. There is nothing else in the entire world that is God-breathed. And that was very, very important at the Reformation. Because you had the Roman Catholic Church... Roman church saying that they had traditions that were given by God. Now today, it depends which Roman Catholic you talk to as to what they think tradition is. There are some who hold to the idea that tradition is this thing that was passed down outside 
of scripture. There are others who think of it in terms of the church interpreting scripture. And there are other views as well. And of course we've also got people like the Mormons who say that the Book of Mormon and the doctrines and covenants and the pearl of great price which they don't tend to mention to people when they're trying to get them to become Mormons. But but the Mormons say all these were given by inspiration of God too. But only the Bible was. The Quran wasn't. The Bible alone is given by inspiration of God, is breathed out by God. And of course, ultimately, it's the Bible in the original languages, in the Hebrew, the Aramaic, and the Greek, that is God-breathed. A few weeks ago, I read an article which I regretted reading afterwards because it was a tremendous waste of time, but I read an article that someone had put up on the the web saying, well, they've discovered some of the notebooks, some of the notes that were made by the King James translators, which is a wonderful discovery. But this person drew from this, where they said, look, it's translated, they've got notes, they've got alternative translations. Well, that proves the Bible's not inspired. Hopefully you've realised what the problem is, which is that when we say the Bible's inspired, we're not talking about the translation. We're not talking about the King James Bible, the New American Standard Bible, the English Standard Version or whatever, other translation. We're talking about the original languages, what was originally written, which was then translated And every Bible translation, like the King James, comes about because people do what translators do. They know languages, and they translate from one language to another. And if anyone tells you they're translating the Bible by inspiration of God, that person is a liar, and you can tell them that. And that person is deluded. God has never promised to give a translation by inspiration. He has given the word. And he's given a word that can be translated. That people have given their lives to translate. William Tyndale, of course, famously died because he dared to translate the Bible into English and challenge the Roman church and the English churches ban on doing so. The Bible comes from God. And it's the only book in the world, the only thing that is God-breathed. Nothing else is God-breathed. And that's why nothing else can be the source of the church's teaching. And of course it follows from this. Our second point, the supremacy of Scripture, the supremacy of the Bible. We had read on in 2 Timothy, into chapter 4, we'd have read these words, and we'll read them now. I charge you therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Preach the word. The word, he says, preach the Bible. Tell people what the Bible says. Explain the Bible. That's what the church 
is all about. The Bible is supreme. It has to be. Because only here do we have the sure and certain word of God. And one of the problems that the reformers were faced with was that the Bible wasn't supreme in the churches in the West. That other things were. That what the Pope said was supreme. That preachers, instead of pointing to the Bible, were pointing to other things. They would spend a great deal of time telling stories about the saints. Not stories from the Bible, but stories about miracles that came from somewhere else. Stories that were made up. Stories that had been changed and altered over time. Stories that weren't from the Bible, even when they were true. They were entertaining more than anything else. And people were telling their own ideas. They were saying, well, I think, well, what you think, what I think, doesn't matter. The pulpit is not the place of people to say, well, this is what I think. But it's to say, thus says the Lord, this is what God thinks, what God says, because God's word is supreme. Again, to go back to the definition that sola scriptura, scripture alone means the Bible is the only infallible rule of faith in the church. Only the Bible is infallible. And that's why when Paul and his companions were preaching in Berea, the Berean Jews were very noble because they were searching the scriptures to see whether these things were so. They took their Bibles and they said, how does what Paul is saying compare to the Bible and the Bible says they were noble. They didn't just say, well, he's an apostle. Must be true. They said, does it fit with the Bible? And then it's true. So the Bible even tested the apostles' teaching and preaching. And again, they didn't go and do what, what the Mormons will invite you to do if they come around. The Mormons will say, well... Here's the Book of Mormon, now pray over it. And if you talk to them, they'll often say, well, I have a witness, I read the Book of Mormon. They said, I prayed about it and God gave me, and their word, not mine, a burning in the bosom, they say, that made me know that the Book of Mormon is true. In other words, the final appeal they want you to make with the Book of Mormon is to how you feel about it. But the final appeal that the apostles made in their preaching, in their teaching, was what does the Bible say? Does it agree with the scriptures? Because the church has always had scriptures. As soon as the first scripture was written down, and that's probably, probably the book of Genesis written by Moses we, we're not sure when the book of Job was written that might be a little earlier we don't know when Psalm 90 was written that might be a little earlier because of course Psalm 90 is by Moses as well but as soon as the first scripture was written the church had scripture well says the Roman Catholic but how do you know what's in the Bible 
And the answer isn't, well, my Bible got a contents page. That's not the answer. They'll say, well, look, the contents page is given you by the church. Well, it's not. The contents page is not inspired by God. But it's a list of the books that are inspired by God. You can think about it this way. You think about it in terms of a human artist. Now, some artists, we don't know everything they ever painted. Vermeer, the great Dutch master, we don't know everything he painted. And there's a, a list, whenever a painting is found and they think it's by Vermeer, a whole load of it, experts will examine it. Now you may have heard a story of a man called Van Meergren, who was a Dutchman who lived during the Second World War, lived in the interwar period to after the war. And Van Meergren was a forger. who He had been... Well, he felt he'd been insulted by the art critics, that they, they had said that his paintings were awful. It might possibly have also something to do with the fact that he stole the wife of the leading Dutch art critic at the time. That may have also affected his career. I'm told it generally does. But he felt that the art world had rejected him, and he was going to make the critics look like a bunch of monkeys. And so he developed a way of forging pictures to look like Vermeer. And he said and the great challenge was to make them look really genuinely old. And he did it. And no one would have known about it except that one of his pictures he sold to Hermann Goering, a Nazi Air Force chief, Hitler's number two. And after the war it came out he, that this fellow had sold a priceless Dutch national treasure to the Nazis. Van Meergren to the firing squad. Except, of course, Van Meergren said, I didn't sell them a vermi, I sold them a Van Meergren, a forgery, and I can prove it. But you see, as long as that forgery was thought to be real, it was in the canon of Vermeer's works. But when it was proved to be by Van Meergren, it was in the canon then of Van Meergren's works, as far as people were known, as far as people knew. But was that forgery ever really part of the canon of Vermeer? Never was. Because Vermeer never painted it. There's a an odd little book out in the world called, that goes by the name occasionally of the Epistle of Paul to the Laodiceans. It's about 20 verses and they're all cribbed from other epistles of Paul. But that doesn't belong in the Bible. It was never given by inspiration of God and so even if you put it in the Bible it doesn't belong there. The canon of scripture, that's the, the books that belong in scripture are in scripture and they belong there because God gave them. And of course it took time for people to get them all. Because Paul's epistles are written to all these different churches. And you can imagine you have a fellow from Rome who's visiting Thessalonica. Let's say he's got a cousin in Thessalonica. It's entirely possible. 
And he's talking about, he says, look, our church has an epistle from Paul. Oh, that's great, says the Thessalonian. Our church has two. But neither church, until the two meet up, has the other one. And so they exchange copies. But always, the Thessalonian epistles and the Roman epistle existed. The Bible is supreme because God has given it. And the church always has a Bible. And that Bible is now complete. As soon as the last letter in the book of Revelation was written down, and the ink was still wet on the parchment, or papyrus, or whatever it was written on, the Bible was complete. And the Bible is over absolutely everything. But the Bible is given to the church, the people of God, because God is building a people. The Bible is supreme in the church, not only in the home. And it works in the church. It governs the church. We're not left to ourselves to decide, well, this is how we're going to, to use the awful modern term, do church. But we are going to listen to the word of God, listen to the Bible. When we come together as the people of God, we don't do it to work out by a majority vote what we'll do we're not going to do that on Wednesday night we're not going to come around and listen to people's ideas and decide on a majority vote we're going to come and listen to the Holy Spirit speaking to us we're going to listen to God and he speaks in the Bible to guide us and to lead us God's word is not subject to revision. Our thoughts are, our ideas are, but God's word is never revised. It's supreme. We don't look at the Bible and say, well, they thought that, but we know better. There's a criticism made in the 19th century, quite a right criticism, that in so many theological colleges, it seemed that the professors were the final authority. The professor said, well, the Bible says this, but we now know. Now, the Bible says this, the professor therefore is wrong if he contradicts it. The Bible is supreme, and finally the Bible is sufficient. It is sufficient. It is enough that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work and the picture here is you've got a man who is going to work you can imagine what the job is he's got a job and he needs his tools and he's got a toolkit that's got absolutely everything he needs in it he never has to go, go out and say as plumbers very often do it seems sorry haven't got the right tool for that mate I'll come back later when I've got it. He's always got all the tools in the box. The Bible has everything we need as a church in it. But it's sufficient for what it's for. Again, think of our illustration of the plumber. The plumber with a complete plumber's kit doesn't have anything really that he needs for carpentry. He's a plumber. 
That's not what a plumber's kit is for. In the same way, when we say the Bible is sufficient, we mean it's sufficient for what God gave it for. The Bible is not sufficient to learn how to do brain surgery. It was never meant to do that. That's not what it's for. The Bible is to teach us what we are to believe and what we are to do as the people of God. It's not to teach you how to do brain surgery. That was, of course, one of the problems that they had with, you probably heard the story of Galileo, the Renaissance scientist, astronomer, who observed the, the heavens and worked out that actually it doesn't look like the earth is in the centre of the universe and everything else revolves around it. Which incidentally wasn't a good thing in the astronomy of those days, but that's what everyone thought. And there were those who said, well, Galileo, you've got to be wrong because look what the Bible says. Galileo quite correctly actually said, but the Bible's not given us to teach astronomy. The Bible isn't there to teach us how the stars move, but who moves the stars. The Bible is given to teach us about God. And so where the Bible speaks, the Bible is supreme and ultimate. But we must understand the Bible's focus is on God's saving work, glorifying himself through the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the center. And his people, it's for his people. The Bible gives us everything we need to be the people of God. Everything we need is in the Bible. All we need to live the Christian life. And the Christian life, of course, is life in the church, in community, is in the Bible. The Bible is enough for everything the church needs, everything the Christian needs to be a Christian. Now, a Muslim can come up to you, and one did once, and said to me, well, I don't think the Bible's sufficient, because where does it tell us when Jesus was born? To which the response is, well, where does the Quran tell us that? Stumped Muslim at that point, he doesn't. Because that's not part of what we need to know. We don't absolutely need a, an absolute day, month, hour, year for when Jesus was born. We're given rough dates, we're given information. But it's sufficient for all that we need as Christians, all we need to be Christians. And so we can have certainty in the Bible. We can trust the Bible. One of the great tragedies of the church in the particular 19th, 20th century is the loss of trust in the Bible. The loss of trust in what God has said and people have tried to, to add other things. To say, well, alright, what we need is something else. There was a, a fashion, a fad, if you will, in the, the late 19th century to give sermons on popular novels. There's a fad today to do it on movies. But no, the Bible is sufficient. The Bible is 
living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. There's power in the word. There's power in the Holy Scriptures. And so, as we look back, as we celebrate the Reformation, let's remember that the Reformation said, here's the Bible, read it. Here's the Bible, study it. Here's the Bible, love it. Because in the Bible, Jesus is brought to us. It is, as the hymn writer puts it, it's the casket. It's the, the treasure chest where it is the golden casket where gems of truth are stored. It is the heaven-drawn picture of Christ, the living word. Do we want to know what Jesus is like? We can only know that in the Bible. Only the Bible tells us all about Jesus and all we need to know about him. The Bible shows us this wonderful man, this wondrous man, this man who commands respect, this man who is God's beloved son, and we hear him. The Bible, and the Bible alone, has as its source God himself speaking through men, Therefore, only the Bible is absolutely supreme. And the Bible is therefore sufficient. We don't need to supplement it with other things to strengthen it that way. It's not like some of those buildings you see, they've got to put all these buttresses up up against it. It's a building that stands without anything else having to prop it up. And so we are called back to the Bible we are called to God's word because all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof, for correction for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work Amen Alright, we're going to pause right there, that's first message and when we come back we'll be listening to the second on faith alone but uh, let's take a commercial break if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Finding for the Faith you can do so my email address is talkback at findingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook facebook.com forward slash Christian. follow me on Twitter my name there at Christian. come back yet another uh, Sola of the Reformation uh, taught by Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charm stay tuned don't want to miss it we'll be right back If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
Good morning. Good morning, sir. Can I help you? Yes. Do you have a copy of 30 Days in the Desert to Learn Your Purpose and to Cast the Vision to the Ignorant Masses by S. Furtick QWZ? Uh, well, I don't know the book, sir. Uh, never mind. Never mind. How about 101 Ways to Build a Mega Church and Make Big Bucks? I? Well, some American gentleman whose name eludes me at the moment. I believe his last name rhymes with Shin. Uh, no. Well, we haven't gotten in stock, sir. <sighs> oh, well. Not to worry. Not to worry. Can you help me with the screw tape letters? Ah, yes. C.S. Lewis. No. I beg your pardon? No, Harold Wapcat. I think you'll find C.S. Lewis wrote the screw tape letters. Sir. No, no, Lewis wrote the screw tape letters with one C. This is the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. The screw tape letters with two C's. Yes, I should have said that. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. Hmm, funny, you've got a lot of books here. Yes, we do, but we don't have the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. Hmm, pity. It's more thorough than Lewis's. More thorough? Yes, I, I wonder if it might be worth looking through all of your screw tape letterses. No, sir, all of our screw tape letterses have one C. Are you sh quite sure? Quite. Hmm. Not worth just looking? Definitely not. <sighs> all right, how about The Great Divorce? Yes, well, we have that. That's G-R-A-T-E, Divorce, but also by Harold Wapcat. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. We don't have anything by Harold Wapcat. He actually, he's not very popular. Not the problem of pain. That's P-R-O-A-B-L-U-M. No. The Chronicles of Narnia with a K. No. How about Out of the Violent Planet? Definitely not. Sorry to trouble you. Not at all. Good morning. Good morning. Oh! Yes. I, I wonder if you might have a copy of Perilous Landra. No, as I said before, we're right out of Harold Wapcat. No, not Harold Wapcat. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. Yes. You mean Paralandra? No, Perilous Landra by C.S. Lewis. That's Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist lesbian theologian. No, well, we don't have Perilous Lander by C.S. Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist lesbian theologian, and perhaps to save time, I should add that we don't have Dandy Landra by C.S. Lewis, or the penultimate battle by Clive Staples Chewbacca, or even Out of the Silent but Deadly Planet by B.S. Lewis with four eyes and a silent Q. What a pity, that's my favorite. Why don't you try Zondervan? I, I did, they sent me here. Did they? I, I wonder. Oh, do go on, please. Yes, I, I wonder if you might have the amazing adventures of Pastor Perry Noble and his intrepid spaniel Stig amongst the giant purpose-driven pygmies of Beckles. Volume 8. No, don't have that. Funny. Got a lot of books here. Well, I mustn't keep you standing here, thank you. Oh, well, do you have... No, no, we haven't. No, we haven't. But, 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 Sorry, but, but, it's 1 o'clock. We're closing for lunch. I, I saw it. I saw it. What? What? I, I saw it over there. Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Yes. B-O-D-I-E-S. Yes. M-A-Y-E-R. Yes. Yes, well, we do have that, as a matter of fact. The expurgated version. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch that. The expurgated The version. expurgated version of Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Mayer? The one without the Lutherans. The, the one without the Lutherans? They've all got the Lutherans. It's a standard religious body. The Lutherans are in all the books. Well, I don't like them. They baptize infants. All right, I'll remove it. Any other religious bodies you don't like? I don't like the Presbyterians. Ah, the Presbyterians, right. Presbyterians. There you are. Any others you don't like? Any others? The Methodists. The Methodists, the Methodists, the Methodists, the Methodists. Ah, yeah, they are. There you are. No Lutherans, no Presbyterians, no Methodists. There's your book. I can't buy that. It's torn. <laughs> I wonder if you have... Um... No, go on. Ask me anything. We've got lots of book here. You know, it's a bookshop. How about Osteen brushes his teeth? No, no, we don't have that one. Funny. Uh, the Gospel According to Rob Bell. No, no, no. Try me again. Uh, I know. Uh, Martin Chemnitz is the two natures in Christ. No, no, no. What, what, what? what? Yeah, Martin Chemnitz is the two natures in Christ. Martin Chemnitz is two... Huh? 
Yes, we got it. I see it somewhere. Yes, I found it. It's here. Got it. Yes, here we are. Martin Kemnitz's Two Natures in Christ. There's your book. Now buy it. I don't have enough money. I'll take a deposit. I, I don't have any money. I'll take a check. I, I don't have a checkbook. I got a blank one. I, I don't have a bank account. Right. I'll buy it for you. There we are. There's your change. There's some money for a taxi on the wait, way home. There's your wait, book. wait, wait. What, 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 what? I can't read. You can't read. Right? Sit down. Sit down. Sit, sit. Are you sitting comfortably? Right. Chapter one. Because the person of the incarnate Christ is made up of two natures, the divine and the human, united into one hypostasis, there follows from this a communion of attributes. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. (laughs) To err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that Sola Scriptura and Sola Fide are actual biblical things. Because they are. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring... 
Fighting for the Faith to enter the world, and you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you're going to see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute an amount that you choose. That's right. You get to pick your rank in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. This is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here's part two of our light episode. You have to put that in air quotes because this is some heavy stuff. Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley talking about sola fide, faith alone, and he'll be working through uh, Romans, uh, I think, chapter 5. Here we go. Let us read from the Word of God, from Paul's epistle to the Romans. Reading from chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 5, verse 2. Paul has been speaking of the the sinfulness of man. He has been showing how it is that the law concludes everybody under sin, that God may have mercy on whomever he will have mercy. And that God's condemnation of all is so that people may be justified freely by his grace. So Romans 4, 1 through 5, 2. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the uncircumcised only? Or upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that, he, that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also who walk in the steps of the faith, 
which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise is made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations, in the presence of him whom he believed God, who gives life to the dead, and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who, contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us it shall, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offences, and was raised because of our justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Our text this evening is found in the portion of scripture that we read, Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking in this series of five messages at what are called the five solas of the Reformation. The message of the Reformation summarized in these five statements. Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. Last week we looked at scripture alone and what that means. That it means the scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith and practice in the church. And this week we look at faith alone. Sola fide, to use the Latin, faith alone. And it's the great central question of the Reformation. It's the question that Martin Luther was tormented with as a monk. How do I get right with God? How can I know that God accepts me? It's a question that it's not too much to say that all of Protestantism pretty much is built on this great question. How can I be right with God? 
How can a man be right with God? And the statement, the definition of this teaching is that our justification before God is by faith in Christ alone. The only way to be accounted righteous before God is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Begins with this great word justification. And we saw that word appear several times in our reading as we read through Romans 4 into Romans 5. The idea is introduced in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus Again, verse 26, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What does it mean to be justified? It means to be accounted righteous before God. To be accepted by him as right. To be right with God. Now the word justification, of course, in English comes from Latin, as a lot of these technical terms in English do. And there's a certain confusion in the Latin word in that it can mean to make righteous, and that's what in the Middle Ages people came to think of it as meaning, meaning that God takes somebody who is unrighteous and turns them into, transforms them into someone who is righteous in themselves. And so, in the medieval view of justification, you could have degrees of justification. You could be more or less justified. But what Martin Luther realized as he read the Bible, not only in Latin but in Greek, was that the what God's actually saying in the Bible isn't that he turns, in this word justification, isn't that he turns unrighteous people into righteous people, but it's a, it's a law court word. We all know that in the courts you can have, broadly speaking, unless something goes horribly wrong in this country, but if you have a verdict it's either guilty or not guilty. Guilty or justified. And that's what this word is. It's a law court term. It's that God counts, he imputes righteousness. That word that comes up in Romans 5. Imputation. Imputation, it's a very simple term. It's putting something to your account. It's an accounting term. That you're filling out the balance sheet and you put these things in the credit or the debit, and God puts the righteousness of Christ in the, de- in the debit column. He counts it to us. He says, this is yours. It's not a transformation, but it's a verdict, so you're either one or the other. There's no sort of continuum, as there was in the Roman Catholic view, as there is in the Roman Catholic view. Luther gave a typical Luther illustration, really. He said, it's like this. You have a pile of dung. 
Luther was fond of that sort of illustration. You have a pile of dying peasants field. Remember when I was uh, in Norfolk, I'd have to walk between where I lived, my mother's house, and the bus stop through the fields. And quite often, the farmer would leave a nice big pile of cow dung for putting on the fields by the side of the road, and you would have to hold your nose as you walked past. It's nasty stuff. And Luther says, it's like you have a pile of dung, and there's a snowfall, and the snow covers the dung, and the dung is now white and beautiful. It looks lovely. It's covered up. The Roman Catholic says, no, no, it's like this. When you become, when you're converted, that pile of dung is turned into a pile of gold. That's the difference between the two views. But the Roman Catholic, if he were honest, must go on to say, but as you do things that you should not do, then bits of the gold turn back into dung. And if you commit a mortal sin, then the whole thing turns back into dung and that's it. It's the difference between the idea of it being transformation and being a status before God. It's a declaration. It's a declaration that God makes that you are right with him, you are righteous in his sight. He looks upon the Christian and says, you are accounted righteous. Now if you have this idea of a a continuum and it goes more or less, then there's always going to be a certain amount of doubt. Am I good enough? Am I righteous enough? Am I really acceptable enough to God? And of course that's what led to the the confessional. Roman Catholics will go to confess their sins to the priest. And not so much today, but it used to be the case the priest would have to ask very intimate questions in order to try to find out, try to make sure that the penitent had confessed all their sins so they could be forgiven, all of them. Always an uncertainty, whereas in reality it's a matter of if you are justified, you are justified. You are right with God. And you can know. And you can be certain. And to be justified means this. Being justified by faith. We have present possession. Peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can know. You can know. That God is on your side. That here he smiles and smiles forever. That when you are a Christian, when you are justified, it means that God is for you and not against you. And if God is for us, who can be against us, asked the Apostle. It's a marvellous thing to know. For a certainty, God on our side, God and sinners reconciled. That's what justification means. It means having Christ's righteousness put to my account. It means that I am counted before God, righteous like him. It's like when 
Young David and Jonathan first met after David defeated Goliath and Jonathan took his royal robe off and put it on David so that David then is arrayed in royal robes. God is pleased to cover our unrighteousness with the righteousness of his son. What Jesus has done is put to your account so that rather than looking to my works and finding that they don't do anything, I look at his works, thy works, not mine or Christ. Speak peace unto this heart, says the hymn writer. That's what it means. And so blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. And there cannot be a a mere nullity there. Not a mere non-imputation, but also an imputation then of righteousness. Righteous in God's sight, because in Christ. So justification means that God looks at the Christian and says, you are righteous. But that justification is available only by faith in Christ. We are justified by faith in Christ. Because faith always has an object. Sometimes you will hear Christians speak of faith as though it were some sort of force that does stuff. Very often it's simply an imprecision of language. But we need to remember that faith is basically trust. It's not simply taking God at his word. It is taking God at his word. It certainly isn't simply saying of God, well, the Bible says that Jesus lived and died and rose again. I believe Jesus rose again from the dead. That's good. But, says James in his epistle, that sort of faith the demons have, because the demons know absolutely for a a fact what happened. They're ancient beings, they were around when it did happen. So merely acknowledging mentally that Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again, in the same way that we might acknowledge mentally that uh, Theresa May is the Prime Minister right now, which she is whether you like it or not, or that the Battle of Shrewsbury was in 1403, It's not enough. But faith is putting your trust in God. And it's putting our trust in God, in Jesus Christ. It is personal. Christian faith is trust in Jesus. Trust in God, in Christ. Because of course... Jesus is God the Son, and you cannot have the Son without the Father and the Spirit. But our trust is in God as he has revealed himself in Jesus. And it is a trust in his person and his work. In his person. And it's in his person who he is. We find that the New Testament, the Gospels... The first point of the Gospels is to bring us face to face with a person, 
with a man, Jesus Christ, with a character, with a man who is unlike any other man who has ever lived. The Gospels are there to show us Jesus and to show us that he is God with us, Emmanuel. Mark, the beginning of his gospel, tells us this is the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He lays it out on the table. He says, this is who this man is. He is Jesus. He's a man, a real human being, a real man. He's a man, he's got a man's name, a real human name. The name of a, a real man in ancient Israel, ancient Judea, during the Roman occupation, during the Roman period. He's called Jesus. And of course, Matthew explains he's called Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. The name means Yahweh saves. Now, of course, there's some smart Alex will go, well, how is he called Jesus when the English language didn't exist back then? To which the answer is, well, we translate names. The name has been translated into English. How it was pronounced back then? Well, generally the, the feeling is it was probably pronounced Yeshua. But it doesn't matter how you pronounce it. The point is, the man, a real man, a real man who was born in Bethlehem, a real man who grew up in Nazareth, who was crucified on the cross, Jesus. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised Saviour that God sent into the world. He is the Anointed One, the One whom God sent. Christian faith says with the Apostle Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, because he is the Son of God, and he is the Son of God. He is not just a Son of God, he is unique in his relation to the Father. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He never says, I am God. But all that he does and all that he says is intended to lead us to do what the Apostle Thomas did after the resurrection, to fall down before him and worship him and cry, my Lord and my God. Whoever has seen me, Jesus says, has seen the Father. Christian faith is faith in a person. Faith in this Glorious, this wondrous man who is God with us. That's Christian faith. Faith in a person. It is summed up in this great confession of faith. Jesus is Lord. Lord not only in the sense of being the one who's in charge of everything, but in the sense that when... The ancient Jews took the Hebrew scriptures and translated them into Greek. They felt the, the name of God was too holy to be translated 
And so they substituted the word kurios, Lord. Jesus is Lord means Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. He is, as we said in our opening hymn, God of the covenant. The God who reveals himself. The God who said to Moses, I am who I am. That's Jesus. And we know God in him and we cannot know God any other way. We can know about God, but we cannot know God in that personal sense without Jesus Christ. Apart from him, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has made him known. Nobody else. God is known in Jesus. So Christian faith is in his person. Secondly, Christian faith is in his work. The other day I was visiting a sadly redundant church now in Shropshire, a place of the wonderful name of Preston Gubbles. And in the 19th century they had a, a vicar who was a woodcarver. And he made his own pulpit. And he carved on the front, we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified. His work. Because the person came to do a work. And he came to do a work of redemption. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus he has a, a work that the Father gave him to do. And he could say, I have finished the work that the Father gave me to do. It's a finished work of Christ. A work of redemption. The work of the great high priest who offered himself and died. It's focused on the cross. Our faith in Jesus Christ is in him first and foremost as Redeemer. And everything else then fits in with that in the centre. It's not in Christ first of all as our example. He is our example. Be imitates of me, said the Apostle, as I am of Christ. So Jesus is our example. But before all that he's our Saviour. He's not just our teacher, he is our teacher, but before all that, he's the saviour. The cross is in the middle. Sometimes think of the, the symbolism of our building with the communion table between the pulpit and the people. In the middle, where we remember Christ's death is in the centre of the church. Because that's what's at the middle, at the centre, the death of Christ, his finished work upon the cross. That's what it's all about, his person and his work, the person of the Redeemer, the work of the Redeemer. And our, all our trust is in the redeeming Christ. So justification is by faith in Christ. And then that word alone. Now the Roman Catholics complained about Martin Luther. They said, where is that word alone? 
in the Greek? And Luther, of course, replied, it's implied there. Because it doesn't say we are justified by faith. Plus, it says we are justified by faith. Now, when Martin Luther translated Romans 5.1, he translated it to read, Therefore, having been justified by faith alone, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And they said, some Roman Catholics will say, you know, the only place it says in the Bible, faith alone, is in James, when it says faith without works is dead. But James is talking about something different. He's not talking about justifying faith. He's talking about the person who says, well, doesn't matter what I do. I've got faith, but has nothing to show for it. But the point here is this, that having been justified by faith, Paul says, he doesn't say having been justified by faith with love, faith plus works, faith plus the sacraments. He says by faith, because that was the great issue at the Reformation. Are we right with God through trusting in Jesus Christ alone, or do we have to add something to it? Do we have to add our good works to be right with God? No, we don't. Because our good works spring from faith. The faith that justifies is never alone. It brings forth fruit. But works are fruit, they are not root. Very important not to get the two confused. They are fruit. They are not root. They are apples and not potatoes, if you will. Potatoes, of course, are the root. Justifying faith, justified simply by trusting in Christ. Not by bringing other things in, because Christ alone is the saviour. The problem was with the Roman Catholics, the Reformation, so many had a, a view of faith that was really simply a matter of ticking boxes and saying, well yes, I, I agree with that statement. Not trusting a person. But because faith is trusting in God, in Jesus Christ, trusting in what he has done, Adding anything else is an insult to God. Because adding anything else is saying, well, I don't think that your work is enough, Jesus. I don't think that I can rely on you, Jesus. I need to bring something else. It's rather like, well, someone's used the the illustration, it's like you're invited to one of the Queen's garden parties at Buckingham Palace. At these parties, of course, they put on a wonderful spread of food. There's more than enough. And you go along with your lunchbox, because you don't trust that there'll be enough food for you. It's an insult to the host. If you go along to a feast, and you bring your own lunchbox just in case, there's not enough. There is enough. Christ is enough. Does Jesus save or not. Jesus saves, and therefore it's only trust him. 
him alone, and my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, as the hymn writer. But he goes on to explain that it is built on nothing more either. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, that is, the best feelings that I have. When I get up in the morning and the sun is shining, the birds are singing, everything's going all right. I don't trust that feeling, he says. I trust on him and his grace, his mercy, his love. Only trust him, looking only unto him. We don't look to ourselves We look to him, we trust in him because our righteousness, our standing before God is only through faith in Jesus Christ, not faith plus anything. It's a simple message, a vital message. Justification, our being right with God, is by faith in Christ alone. There's no other way to be right with God. But it's a simple justification. It's not a matter of going through ceremony after ceremony after ceremony. It's not a matter of looking up our good works. Have I done enough? Have I done enough? You've never done enough. When we have done all, we shall say to God, we are unprofitable servants. But it's a matter of, has he done enough? Is he enough? Only trust him. Only trust him. Only trust him now, says the hymn writer. He will save you. He will save you. He will save you now. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So, what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.